Yeah, body's a little bit tired, but heart is so full. Um, just your warm hospitality and uh, transcendent times of worship, um, sharp input, um, just wonderful. And I want to warn you beforehand, I don't try and do this, but when my heart is full, it sometimes overflows through my eyes. And my wife also says, when you're tired, you lose your filter, so be careful. <laughs> I, uh, I want to keep my filter on, but I want to hopefully land this time with a message that um, is not kind of one of the greatest hits. It's not a message I've preached often, but it's a text that lives for me with uh, prophetic import, and uh, it's what the clever people call narrative theology. It's not a clear directive, but it's uh, the last words of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians elders in Acts 20, and uh, you think of any last words to people you love. You're going to put your preferences aside. You're going to leave them with the things that are absolute must-haves. And Paul's last words as he calls these Ephesians elders to Miletus, about 50 miles on the coast from slightly inland Ephesus, uh, are not preferences, he doesn't beat around the bush, and he kind of keeps on repeating, it's almost cyclical, as he keeps on repeating the things, don't forget this, and, and, and don't forget that, and don't forget that. And I believe it's a, just a brilliant pastoral manifesto for us as we return to our churches. It's not just pastoral, though. We must remember that this is the Apostle Paul who is on his way to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, having planted this church, handing it over to this group of elders, it's a beautifully apostolic shepherding manifesto. And it expresses both a sense of care for the flock, but also very, very courageous commission. And I want to say at this time, what would it be to, to lead and to build in a culture of commission and care? You know, before we go to these 20 verses, whenever I'm with the British church, I'm filled with hope for the church in exile. I think uh, you together, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, England, are probably about a decade or so ahead of America in terms of a post-Christendom reality. And whenever ever I'm here, I'm going, oh, okay, it's, it's going to be okay. God is with the people of God in exile. And as we feel the sense of exile creeping in to us, there's just such a sense of fortification, knowing God is with you. There's a great sense of resilience. There's a sense of joy. There's a sense of resourcefulness. The UK church always seems to do more with less. American church seems to do less with more, and I love being in the American church, but I want to say, man, I go home fortified by your faith, and, and as the global team, we trust that we've come and, and encouraged your faith, but there has been a mutual encouragement of our faith, and so as we go to this text, what is it to say, oh Lord, can we be encouraged by the Apostle Paul as he gives his final words, his magnum opus to these Ephesians elders. Verse 17 of Acts 20, we're going to keep our nose in the text, 
We're going to have it in front of us, but even better if you open paper and leather, and we're going to go, go through this wonderful narrative theology. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three, day, three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified." I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord, amen? amen. Your very own John Stott says about this passage that while some commentators see acts totally prescriptively and others see it just descriptively, it is actually significant description. It's significant description. So he is describing his life for the three years he was with them, but it's significant description. There's teaching within his description. And Matthew Henry says that, that Paul's final words here are full of both pathos, there's this heart, there's tears, and also practicalities. What is it to, to, to pick up the, the pathos of Paul, but also the practicality of, of Paul? One of the things we have to think of as we put ourselves in the shoes of the Ephesians elders is that they are losing his hero, their hero. They're losing their father. They're losing the man who preached night and day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, who started his own business there, 
who preached so powerfully that a riot was caused, who laid his hands on them, Acts 19, as they were filled with the Spirit and prophesied. This was their hero. And it's like God was asking them, can you have a mission without a hero? Is Jesus hero enough? And I believe today in the church worldwide, Jesus is asking his church, can you have a mission without a hero? A human one at least. Jesus is asking, am I hero enough? Can the mission continue when people who are heroic move on or move down? And it's such an important heart work for us. Oh, Jesus, the people of God always wanted a king. Are you king enough for me? And what you see in this passage is it's saturated with both care and commission. Take care of yourselves and the whole flock of which the Holy Spirit made you overseer. You see the beautiful descriptions of elder, both shepherd who cares, governor who guards, overseer who administrates and leads. This is a beautiful text for bringing through elders. And we, we have to realize none of us are excellent at all three, but we've got to be proficient at all three. Reminding them of their job description to care for the flock. But at the same time, he's saying, I'm constrained by the Spirit to go on to Jerusalem. There's mission. And actually, mission always puts pressure on the care of the flock. Taking out people who are seemingly indispensable and showing that Jesus will still build his church. Going to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going on there except that the Holy Spirit warns me, prison and hardship awaits. Gospel compels me. And, and it's like he's echoing Jesus' words in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I care for the flock. The sheep know my voice. I lay down my life for the flock. I guard them against the thief and the wolf. The good shepherd then says in John 10, but I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must go to them. It's like Paul is echoing the words of Jesus, the good shepherd, shepherd, the chief shepherd, but also Jesus, the great commissioner. To lead biblically, following Paul as he follows Christ, is to lead with both care and commission, commission and care. We are not just dispatching people like Amazon parcels off on mission. We are laying down our lives for them. But at the same time, as we lay down our lives for them, we know ultimately caring for them is including them in the great story of God, the great mission of God. You talk to any farmer who's a shepherd, they say the greatest danger to sheep is foot rot if they stay still. To care for sheep is to have them move on. And in this cultural moment where we know people are downcast and, and brokenhearted and tired and drained, we have to know what it is to lay down our lives for the flock, that our voices actually comfort them and encourage them. But boy, part of caring is commissioning them. And there's such a reluctance in our day and age to enlist for mission again. It's like people have rediscovered the beauty of a slow life. And part of it is beautiful, another part of it is terrible, because they've been, become quite self-protective. These ironclad boundaries, 
And Paul speaks to that, commission and care. I remember coming to Southlands, the church that we've been shepherding for 14 years, and for the first three years, we were on someone else's team, and we were just trying to acclimate to this new American context, just trying to learn. I'm so grateful for three years of learning before I was leading as a point guy. After about six months, a man who was leading the team said, Al, what do you see? What do you see? This was a church that had planted 14 churches, in tw- sorry, 12 churches in 14 years, strongly on mission and multiplication. But I said, you know, Chris, I see a whole lot of fingers and not many thumbs. On the leadership team here, there are a whole lot of fingers. He said, what do you mean, Al? I said, there's a lot of people that are talking about mission and going and, and government, and, but, but, but where are the shepherds? Where's, where's the thumb? Where are the people that are going to hold the people? And I looked at a flock that just looked jolly tired and pretty insecure. And so for about three years, we tried to rebuild a, a shepherded culture. Rig was so helpful in that. I remember the time when Rig sat with our team of elders and said, you don't have a shepherded culture, you only have a missional culture. And we took it as a godly slap on the wrist. All of us are trying to hold that tension. None of us get it perfect. But I want to challenge us and encourage us from this text on what it is to build with the culture of commission and care, having both fingers and thumbs. Is that all right? And there's two values here that that I believe in our movement together we have that we must keep on holding strong. They're not going to be new, they're not going to be sexy, but it's vital that we hold them for a culture of commission. And there are two that I believe we need to freshly lean into. Some of you might be strong, but as I look across our movement, we go, I don't know, actually we need to freshly lean into them. I'm going to give them to you briefly and then dive in. Firstly, we need to be gospel anchored. We need to hold that value. Secondly, we need to be spiritually assured, spirit assured. Third, we need to lean freshly into emotional health. And fourth, I believe we need to lean freshly into generosity of spirit. as we lead with a culture of commission and care. Kind of picking up where Donnie left off last night, but what does it mean to be gospel anchored? I love verse 28. Let's keep our nose in the text here. He says, care for yourselves, we'll get to that soon, and the flock of God which he obtained by his own blood. Gospel-centered shepherding is a reminder that the sheep are not ours, that they are redeemed by the blood of the only shepherd that ever became a lamb. And it's like Paul is reminding them, these people that you love, they're not yours. (laughs) They belong to Jesus. You've laid down your life, but you have not laid down your life as a lamb for them. You have not redeemed them by spotless blood, you were not perfectly righteous, dying in their place, 
and giving them your righteousness. Only Jesus, the Lamb of God, did that. In this moment of deconstruction, can we, as shepherds, hold fast to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, living a perfect life, dying a substitutionary death in our place. I hear many churches preaching the gospel of adoption and the gospel of reconciliation and the gospel of renewal of all things, and I believe in those. Those are biblical. But when it comes to the gospel of substitution, where actually Jesus purchased slaves that had the wrath of God hanging over them and set them free from due death, taking on the death that was rightfully theirs. So many churches have rocked back on that. Clever people call it penal substitutionary atonement. You don't have to call it that. Just make sure that you use Bible words like sin, wrath, repentance, judgment. There ain't no good news unless there's bad news. All we're preaching is gospel of reconciliation. It's beautiful, but it's not the whole package. And Paul is wanting to anchor them in this gospel of substitution. The gospel, the centrality of the gospel is not a brand, beloved. It's not a fad. It's not a coalition. If your church is a town, the main street of that town should be the gospel. The gospel as of first importance. And that's what Paul says. He says, I count my life as worth nothing, not precious about my life, if only I may finish my course, complete my race. Okay, what is it? What does it mean to complete your race, Paul? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's why I know it's not a passing fad. It's the bleeding center of all we do. Ten years ago, we had a man called Michael Eaton who was raised under Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones come through. He actually did our church transition. He sat with our pastors and our friends for about a week, and he studied us. And at the end of it, he said, you know what? I love you guys, but you are experts at ecclesiology, and you are novices at Christology. What do you mean? He said, you always talk about your model of church. You hardly ever talk about the message of Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus lost the gospel. It's not central anymore. It's there. Something we preach to the, to the lost. Don't preach it to the church. And we began a humble reformation, a discovery of the unminable jewel of the gospel. Every time you change it, another facet shines. We will be automatic evangelists if we live in view of the beautiful news. And even beyond planning and strengthening churches, to finish our race is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That will mean that we will plan and strengthen churches, but God forbid that we plan and strengthen churches and don't testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Never let the model of church shine brighter than the message of Christ and the man Christ behind the message. Let's never become model Pharisees. And then he carries on, he says, I don't have your blood on my hands. I love that. He's like, I'm going after three years with a clear conscience. And you're thinking, why does he say, 
I don't have your blood on my hands. Maybe it's because he didn't covet or steal their silver and gold. Certainly he didn't. Maybe it's because he didn't sleep with the secretary. Certainly he didn't. But that's not what he says. I don't have your blood on my hands, he says, because I did not neglect to teach to you the whole counsel of God. To be gospel anchored is to place people in the grand narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and say, actually, the whole message of the Bible is the gospel, and we are not going to skip out some of the angles and corners of this word of God by the grace of God that builds you up and gives you an inheritance. And if we do skip out some of those angles and corners that are potentially offensive, I've got your blood on my hands. Oh, beloved, what is it to preach through the whole counsel of God and say, this, Lord, I do not want to preach it, but I must, otherwise I have people's blood on my hands. What is it to preach it through the grace of God, knowing that ultimately it's going to build people up and give them an inheritance? Short, brief little story. One of the couples I've just been so grateful to be able to disciple towards faith and baptism recently is a couple that, well, he was caught up in a cult as a young man and didn't set foot in a church for 25 years. He was so brutally abused in that cult. And a family member invited him and his partner, who have a special needs child, to our church. We were meeting at that time outside in a tent, and they came with fear and trepidation, but because we had an access ministry for children with special needs, they came, and they just really enjoyed just having 90 minutes without their child. It was kind of free babysitting. But then the gospel began to warm his heart. And he started meeting with his uncle who goes to our church weekly, just an insurance agent who had time. And he began to explain to him the gospel. And then after about six months, I sat with them and, and he just said, we, we believe, we believe, can we be baptized? It's an amazing thing. And so we baptized them and we walked through what that would mean, and they weren't yet married. And I just said, you don't have to be married to be baptized, but, but, but be, being a disciple means that you obey what Jesus teaches. So just know, like, we're going to have this conversation sometime, whole, whole counsel of God. He said, no, that's fine. We'll, we'll have it. So we baptized, and then about a month later, he came. He said, I, I, I feel like God's convicting us. We need to get married. And so we're still walking through that, but I came to the end of Luke 22, and was preaching on the resurrection and the importance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And I found myself just going, I need to speak about people's body image and sexual ethics. Where our culture, I don't know about yours, is so ruled by how people feel about their bodies. They are making permanent decisions about their bodies depending on how they feel. And I knew I was walking through a landmine because... Gender dysphoria is huge, and we've got to walk carefully, but we walked, I think, boldly. And essentially, I call people to say, irrespective of your feelings, your feelings can be big, but the truth is you are made in the image of God, and if God made you male or God made you female, even if you, if you feel different things, can you take off your clothes, stand in the mirror, and say, thank you, God, that you made me this. 
And this man came to me and he said, I grew up and I was part of the gaming industry and I created characters on these games that were my fantasy characters. And actually, I didn't want to be a man. For about two years, I longed to be a woman. And I created characters, and I lived in those characters. And I always just felt like, well, what you feel about yourself, you should act out on that. He said, as you began to preach about accepting God's image in my body, I felt God begin to heal me. He just said, I am glad that God made me a man. I've accepted that God made me a man. It's amazing when the whole counsel of God is preached and it's tough and you feel darkness creeping in and you see the stink eyes, but you say, oh God, give me strength because your word, the word of your grace is able to build people up and give them an inheritance among those who are being sanctified. Don't back off the gospel and the whole counsel of God. When we preach, and I'm going to pepper this with some hometown stories, forgive me, but when we preach the gospel, and we preach it in a way that in, in, in Martin Luther's words, we've got to beat justification into our thick skulls every day, because <laughs> otherwise we start to justify ourselves in other ways. And when we rehearse the gospel, it actually forms a people that both speak truth to their culture and also serve their culture. Speak truth to the city and also serve the city. In the midst of COVID, we, we had this moment and all of the race stuff was going on. And shall we stand and speak against racism or not? Are we going to be associated with BLM? And I spoke to about 10 pastors in our city and I just said, guys, we don't have to associate with BLM to speak against racism. Actually, the gospel of reconciliation calls us to speak against racism. And a couple of minority pastors just said, please, will you stand with us even if you don't believe in BLM? So we did 10 pastors. We actually got on the news. Some people left our church because of it. But we did it because of the gospel. And then quite soon after that, those 10 pastors spoke about a feeding scheme to feed those in our city. And a year later, we sat with the police chief, and he said, man, I got real nervous when I saw you 10 standing with your signs. We just had scriptures on our signs. I got real nervous because most people that stand against racism hate the police. He said, but then when I saw you raise $1.7 million to feed 14,000 people in your city, I knew you were for us. I was just like, wow. That, that smells like the gospel. One moment you're speaking truth to the city, another moment you are serving the city. I'm not bragging on our church. It was 10 churches. It was just a beautiful gospel moment. I think part of what God wants to do is restore our confidence that the gospel is still mighty to save. It's mighty to save, mighty to sanctify. Secondly, we need to hold fast what it is to be spirit-assured. Spirit-assured. Paul so beautifully, he's so understated about the Holy Spirit here. I love the fact that Paul doesn't talk about Acts 
19, and this power moment where he lays hands on these people from Ephesus. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? And they said, no, we didn't. So he places his hands. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. He doesn't talk about that. He's so Britishly understated. I love it. But he talks about the Holy Spirit three times in this passage. And the first moment is when he's talking about their calling to be elders. He says, be shepherds of the church of God, of which the Holy Spirit, verse 28, made you overseers to care for the church of God. He's calling these Ephesians elders to say, hey man, I might have discipled you, I might even recognize this leadership call on you, but actually it's the Holy Spirit who made you an overseer. And I'm not going to be there to remind you and pat you on the back. You need to understand it's the Holy Spirit who makes you an overseer. It's the Holy Spirit who called you. And he is the one who will sustain you. I won't bring an elder through unless I hear him saying, I believe the Holy Spirit made me an overseer. Say after me. I'm not going to say after you. I want to hear you from your own faith. Because I, I can recognize and call. What if the Lord calls me on? What's going to happen at the dead of night when you feel darkness creeping in and everyone's criticizing you? The Holy Spirit made you an overseer. And likewise, ladies, if, if the Holy Spirit called your husband to be a father in the house, you must have an assurance that the Holy Spirit called me to be a mother in this house. And I think all of us have had moments where we've had to go back to our ordination or the prophecies spoken over us and just say, oh God, there's nothing assuring me now, but Holy Spirit, let me remember those words. Spirit assurance is what we need in these days. I remember as a 23-year-old, Terry Fashay saw it in me, brought me through. I think I was too young, but he saw something, and it was Rig who recognized it and affirmed it. But I want to tell you, if every time I got insecure, I had to phone Rig or phone Terry and say, am I an elder or honor? People don't seem to think I am. <laughs> Not right now. Oh, Holy Spirit, you made me. And that word make is beautiful. It's, in the Greek, it's, it, it means to establish. Does it mean once an elder, always an elder? I'm not sure, but it sure means resilience. It sure means we don't go running the moment someone critiques us or we preach a lemon. And then verse 22, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. And you love that word. Some translations say compelled. I prefer constrained because it's the very same word that Paul uses when he says, the Word of God is not constrained, not chained, not bound. He's essentially saying, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what happens except the Holy Spirit testifies to me or warns me, that's the third time, that prison and hardship, but I am constrained by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't it so often happen that if you find yourself in a city or a season or in a relationship where it feels like trial, tribulation, and prison, you go, Holy Spirit, maybe I'm making a mistake. Maybe you didn't send me here. But it seems like Paul actually was warned by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to me that prison and hardship awaits, but still he constrains me. 
Just because you are going through a storm does not mean the Holy Spirit has not sent you there. One of the things we need to cry out is not just for assurance, but Lord, help me not to shrug, shrug off the chains. Some of you marketplace pastors, I mean, all of you are just heroes, absolute heroes, juggling business and family and ministry. And I know that there's moments of like, it's just too much, as the Aussies say, too hard, too hard. And there are moments of rest for sure. But can we feel the constraint of the Holy Spirit? Can we actually ask, Holy Spirit, are you releasing me yet or not? God forbid that we throw off the chains of calling. Thank God that Paul didn't. Our people need both the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the constraint of the Holy Spirit. People are running wild. They're serving their own desires. And then they need to understand the Holy Spirit is a comforter, but he's also a constrainer who calls them and empowers them to go into messy, prison-like situations to bring his life and to bring his joy and bring his peace. Give them a category of spirit constraint, not just of spirit comfort. Amen? Holy Spirit made me. Holy Spirit constrained me. The Holy Spirit testifies. Paul is marvelously understated here, but I just want to ask us, are we sure that we're not living in a kind of charismatic hangover still? Even though Paul doesn't talk about his miraculous moments with the church in Ephesus, what we know by these three words is that Paul has an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. You can't be assured, constrained, and warned unless you're walking in step with the Holy Spirit. We know He was. I just want to remind you, it's not either or. It's both and. We are called to be gospel-anchored and Spirit-empowered, Spirit-assured. And whether we're Pentecostal or Presbyterian, it's not about church background and church denomination. It's that we're following Jesus who lived a life of dependence and reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit. Who are we if we think we can do the mission of Jesus without the Spirit of Jesus? Come on now. We don't have to choose. One of our gifts to the world is that we're not choosing. We're not asking people to choose. Eager desire for the gifts of the Spirit is a command. Firstly, it's fellowship of the Spirit, but, but gifts are part of the package. And I think probably in the last 10 years, we've gone in 1 Corinthians 14, well, let, let all things be done in order. Let's get orderly, because we saw some of the freak show, and we wondered if it pr produced gospel fruit, and then we looked at our friends, Tim Keller and those, and it's like, they don't speak in tongues, and look at all the people pouring into the church. And it was good to humbly learn what it was to be good gospel preachers, because I can't speak for you, but I had to learn. But I want to tell you, let all things be done in order. Let all things be done in order. And some of us are seeing order like a flipping British underground rather than a British farm. Maybe orderly is more like a British farm than an underground. Maybe when God 
thinks of order, he's thinking more organic order than, I watch you, you know, it's running one minute late, the underground. Maybe it's not that kind of order. And we've experienced that kind of beautiful organic order this last two days, haven't we? It's been orderly, but all things have been done. Oh, Lord, what is it to be spirit assured? Thirdly, oh, I'm running out of time. Emotionally healthy. Organic order. I'm going to speed up. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the whole flock. Rig helped us with this passage and said, isn't it interesting that Paul talks about paying careful attention to the whole flock, plural, plural, and it would seem pay careful attention to yourselves, plural. In other words, we're not just taking care of ourselves, we're taking care of ourselves as leaders. This speaks of higher levels of accountability and vulnerability, doesn't it? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes. Not in a legalistic way. Boy, we're striving side by side. As Pete Scazzaro says, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. One of your great series called The Midwife. There's a great quote in it that says this, the world is full of fragile people. When we try to mend them, it can break us. And we are people trying to care for people, but on the way, caring for people can break us. And I want to humbly submit that we need to learn, lean freshly into emotional health. You see Paul not as just a theologically orthodox and spiritually potent leader, but as an emotionally healthy leader here. Verse 19, you saw from day and night how I served the Lord with humility and tears, even though I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. What do we see here? We first see that he was resilient. He didn't live enslaved to his emotions. They saw that he was resilient even in severe testing, and certainly people need to see that. Amen? Amen. But not in a stiff, upper lip, upper lip stoic sense. He was humbly serving the Lord with tears. I think one of, one of the reasons why these guys got on with the job when Paul went was that he didn't try and live like a hero. Certainly not a superhero. He was a humble human who was extraordinarily gifted, for sure. But they saw him cry. Think about that. They saw and heard him ugly cry with snot dripping down. This guy that caused a riot and laid hands on, 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 on them and saw them filled with the Spirit, they saw him ugly cry. There was emotional health here. It was humility. A large part of humility is recognizing we have limitations. That God is God and we are not. God is sovereign and we are not. John Wimber said this, never trust a leader without a limp. And as we apply the gospel to culture, vertical realities turning into gospel culture, and we lead humbly with resilience and tears, people are given permission to show their weakness too. Gospel culture 
is where people are willing to show their weakness, not in like, oh, I'm just keeping it real, man. I'm just so broken, just like you. No. No, no, here I am, I'm weak. It's okay to not be okay. It's not okay to stay that way because we have access to the grace of God. But here I am, not going to stay that way forever. Permission to be yourself, and over time, we trust you'll change. Healthy, emotionally healthy Christianity is where people feel free to be themselves, but they feel challenged to change, but they know they can do it over time, not immediately. For three years, night and day, I warned you with tears. Isn't that beautiful? One of my heroes, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, said this, feelings are both mentionable and manageable. In your team, in your church, are feelings both mentionable and manageable? We're not enslaved to them, but we're not going to suppress them. That's emotionally unhealthy, and there's so many theologically orthodox churches where feelings are not part of the passage package. Are we able to express emotion and affection? What you see with these guys is that they wept. Paul's tears gave them permission for tears. They knelt. They kissed each other. They grieved. I want to land with the final value, gospel anchored, spirit assured, emotionally healthy. So one more word on emotionally healthy. Please have a category for wounds, a biblical category for wounds. Darren Patrick said this, he said, we often get sin and wounds con confused. Sins are rebellious places in our hearts that need repenting. Don't give up calling people to repent of sin. That's the gospel. But wounds are tender places in our hearts that need healing. You cannot repent of wounds, and you cannot go to therapy for sins. When we realize that the atonement includes healing for wounds, it's primarily forgiveness for sins, but it's also healing for wounds. He was bruised for, for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, but then the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Peace. And he was wounded for our anxieties, Isaiah 53. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus was wounded for our anxieties. Part of leading with wisdom is to know when to call people to repent and to know when to say, ah, oh, this is not actually a sin issue. This is a wound issue. Let me take them to the wounded healer, Jesus himself. Finally, generous spirited. Remember the Lord Jesus who spoke these words himself to you. It is more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> Isn't it beautiful? I actually can't even find that exact quote in the Gospels. The commentators scratch their heads. The closest they can come to it is Matthew 8, 10 verse 8, where, where Jesus says, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, heal the sick. You receive without paying, give without being paid. 
Essentially what Jesus is saying is when you realize the richness of what you've received, you give without entitlement, without expectation of being paid. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Beloved, what is it in the light of the gospel to be generous-spirited? To whom much is given, much is required. We see Paul, I mean, it works out financially. He says, you, I, I, I didn't covet any of your silver or gold. He wasn't covetous. He worked hard. I, these hands of mine worked for my own needs and the needs. I mean, marketplace elders, thank you for working hard without pay. Deacons here, thank you for doing that. Thank you, but it's not just those who are not staff. Those on staff, what is it to realize that it's more blessed to give than to receive? Because all of us feel like we have given and given and given. I think this last 18 months feels like the highest level of responsibility with the lowest level of reward. How about you? But when we come back to the fountainhead of all grace and all provision, we go, oh, Lord, I have received freely. Please let me give freely without entitlement. Generosity of spirit is not just about money. It is about time, and it is about relational grace. I want to say Jesus is here to fill our emotional, relational, and financial tanks that we might be able to give and receive the grace of giving again. I love the last few words of this passage because it expresses a kind of generosity of spirit that is quite unique. He has Paul working with his own hands, but he has these guys who've just been commissioned, and they kneel, they weep, they kiss, they pray, and then it says, and they accompanied him to the ship. Isn't that beautiful? It's like, how unnecessary. How superfluous, but how beautiful. Generosity of spirit. I mean, we've got a job to do. We've got a church to care for and commission, but let's just go and make sure that Paul's travel is going to be comfortable. Isn't that beautiful? I just think the Lord is calling us to that kind of generosity of spirit. My father always said, wasting time together is never a waste of time. We're under an urgent mission, but that doesn't mean we don't waste time together. We don't accompany one another to the ship. I want to encourage you in your team building, accompany one another to the ship. Travel together. You're doing that now. Laugh together. Weep together. Express affection, even if it's a little peck on the cheek. COVID has robbed us of affection. We've got to find appropriate ways of bringing affection back into the church. It's so important. I have just realized generosity of spirit means that we give one another the benefit of the doubt and we realize 
with every contentious issue, whether it's masks, vaccine mandates, race, politics, whatever it is, if we realize there's a thing behind the thing, and the thing is a divisive spirit. I want to say Satan doesn't care what contentious issue he uses to split our teams apart. He will use whatever, Black Friday deals after Thanksgiving, if you have Thanksgiving. He doesn't care. And when we realize there will always be more contentious issues that split us apart, they won't stop coming until we recognize the thing behind the thing. I've asked our team, I'll ask you, what would it be if we said every contentious issue that's not a pure Bible thing, it's a disputable thing, what if we fought the divisive spirit harder than we fought about that contentious thing. Our teams would be transformed. There would be affection, there would be unity, there would be fun, there would be joy and laughter that came in. As Eric said, the greatest apologetic of the gospel is love. Generosity of spirit. Giving one another the benefit of the doubt. So easy to look at a person's actions and then look at our motives. My motives are good. All I saw was their actions. Have you thought about their motives? Maybe their actions were not great, but their motives were good. Generosity of spirit. It's more blessed to give than receive. Sometimes money, sometimes time, sometimes the benefit of the doubt. When the great commission is mixed with the great commandment, we have an unstoppable gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for these Ephesians elders. Thank you that you included such a beautiful manifesto of apostolic shepherding. And Lord, we stand. Let's stand together. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would assure us, would constrain us, and would compel us afresh. Lord, we ask for a gospel boldness and a gospel faithfulness. We ask that your spirit would sharpen us again. We ask, Lord God, that you would help us to lean back into emotional health and generosity of spirit towards one another. Oh, Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you. And we thank you that you are so committed to your churches, so committed to your gospel. And so we ask that the great commission and the great commandment would by your spirit be melded together for great gospel fruit. And everyone said, Amen.